today, Sebastian is going to introduce our speaker. Thanks. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Adam Sticha. He comes from the University of Minnesota. He's in the program of uh, biochemistry, molecular biology, and physics. And he's also president of the Genome Writing Guild and chair of the Journal of the Young Investigators. His research is basically focused on genetic and epigenetic manipulation to answer questions in biology and engineering applied systems. And he has conducted research with plants, insects, mammalians, and viral systems. Um, um, I'm really glad to uh, be here introducing him because I think that um, the Genome Writing Guild is very similar with what the GES is about to reach and engage with different publics uh, in regard to his genetic engineering and the impacts in society. So I just... Yeah, yeah thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, I want to thank everyone here, everyone at GES uh, for inviting me to speak uh, today. Uh, it is an honor to be invited. I'm actually really excited to have uh, some discussions with all of you on uh, ethics as well as just broadly uh, genome engineering as a concept. So before we actually start, I'm gonna go with a pop quiz and I'm sure not all of you were expecting to be quizzed on history today, but uh, so who was the first genetic engineer? Some farmer. I'm going with some farmer. Uh, yeah, so we, we know that humans have been manipulating genomes for at least 12,000 years. Uh, so is this, this choice kind of, this choice to start uh, manipulating genomes, to sit down and start uh, breeding plants, planting them, become an agrarian society, really is the foundation of where we are as a society today. Um, we don't usually think of this as genetic engineering, but you can just take a look at like what wild plants look like versus the domesticated versions. And you immediately see that, yeah, this is definitely a form of genetic engineering. And just see wild uh, maize does not look anything like modern maize that we eat every day. Same thing with peppers. Uh, and I came across the peppers just kind of on accident. It, came, it was in the same photo that was discussing corn. But I did also think about the fact that we've managed to breed even hotter peppers like the Carolina Reaper, admittedly from the wrong Carolina, but we won't talk too much about that. Um, anyway, really this like the fact that we are able to sit down and ask the of our plants, what trait do we want these plants to exhibit? How do we want it to look in the long term? And then actually move forward with that was how we were able to settle down as a species in smaller, smaller groups that started to develop bigger and bigger and led to the technology that we have today. Ultimately, the fact that we have penicillin today can be traced back to the division of labor that came down from the Neolithic revolution. So. Uh, once the once agrarian societies did form, we it actually spread very rapidly. And so I have this slide here showing the European spread of agrarian societies over the course of about five thousand years. It spread across the entire continent, but similar spreads happened around the world from each of the like central points where agrarian societies first formed. Um, so we know that without a doubt, big changes happened because we chose to. Uh, settle down and chose to manipulate nature. So it is undeniable that uh, human human technology today would not be where it is without this step. Um, 
I do want want to bring up a kind of elephant in the room kind of thing here of why am I bringing up 12,000 years ago for my talk about modern genome engineering and really comes down to to a really important point. 12,000 years ago, humanity has made a decision that it is no longer just a part of nature, but an active rational manipulator of it, that we are choosing to change the world we live in in order to make it better for us. Now, for 12,000 years, the state of the art was, well, this corn has really big seeds. So if I plant it, hopefully that corn will also have big seeds. Or this corn has more seeds, let's plant that. Or listen, this cow had this cow had more milk and its parents had more milk. And this one had more milk. This one's parents had more milk. So kids, please make sure that these two mate so that the next one has even more milk. And while that's a great state of the art for, for a while, it really didn't develop much for 12,000 years. So that gap happened. And then all of a sudden, starting like around 1944, there was an explosion of our understanding of how DNA works and how we can manipulate it. So we started by learning that DNA is how uh, genetics are inherited. Uh, Very quickly, Franklin, uh, Crick, and Watson ended up finding the structure of of DNA. And less than 20 years after that, we had the first recombinant DNA. Um, And I'm not going to go through every single point on the slide, but an important part is starting in 2012, when a CRISPR was first programmed to cut DNA uh, actively, we've had another resurgence of genetic technologies with base editors and prime editors following shortly thereafter, HDR allowing manipulation of models uh, extremely quickly at a throughput that was not possible beforehand. By 2017, we already had the first clinical trials involving CRISPR. And in 2018, we had the first engineered human germline that happened, albeit with, without great oversight on that one. Now, that, those last two points bring up a really important result of the fact that this explosion has happened. An important result of this is that genome engineering is extremely accessible compared to what it used to be. So even just a few years ago, the cost of genome engineering was huge. It was done by specialized labs that focused on genetic engineering. But since 2012, the drop in price has got the drop in price and the drop in difficulty has moved to the point where many labs around the world that are not genome engineering labs are doing CRISPR screens because it's because it's that accessible. I want I did some like quick math this week and just kind of looked through and saw what the price points were for a few different technologies. And I want to bring to attention. The ZFNs from just a few years ago, if you wanted to buy one now, it, a validated one costs nearly $7,000, where an unvalidated, it costs about $3,000. You can do an in-house CRISPR screen, a CRISPR-Cas9 manipulation for about 50 bucks if you have, including labor costs, to, to be clear, if you already have some of this stuff in, in the lab. If it's your first one, maybe it's a little closer to 500 bucks. But nonetheless, the cost is something that is orders of magnitude less than what it used to be. Not to mention, you can buy a kit to do CRISPR at home for $169. That is a price point that high schooler that really wants to do it can definitely save up for and go buy this kit and just try it out. That is, that is not something that is 
that requires a huge lab or thousands of dollars in equipment, not just 160 bucks that you put together because this sounded cool to do. And the nature of biology means that it's, rep it means that it's replicative, which means that once you have those first plasmids, you can keep those propagating. There isn't this like it's super tight control over that. That's already accessible. So that's one result. The first result is that of this huge explosion is that cat geno genome engineering is available to pretty much anyone if they want some level. And it's much more accessible than it used to be to anyone who does have uh, finances to go even higher with what types of edits they want to be doing. Now, I do want to focus on a second result, and I think it's a really important one. So for thousands of years, we were pretty much limited to genome engineering by whatever nature predefined what arbitrary partitions there were. For example, if you wanted a trait in corn, you were stuck with traits that corn can have or traits that other species that can mate with corn could still have. That is what you were uh, limited to. But now with, with the advent of recombinant DNA, these partitions are just arbitrary partitions. We can move DNA between any organism to any other organism. If we find a trait that we like in one organism, we can start to move that over. And I wanna talk through three really big examples of how this has uh, resulted in positive effect on the world. For starters, CAR T-cell therapy is a good example. So CAR T-cells, uh, if you've not come across them, are take T-cells, which, which are immune cells in your body, program them with a CAR, uh, which stands for chimeric antigen receptor. And it takes a few different pieces. It takes this SCFV, which is just a part of an antibody meant to bind an antigen, as well as a hinge spacer and a stimulatory domain, so that when the T cell is programmed with this it will, and gets put into a patient, it can target very specifically an antigen on, say, a tumor. When it binds a tumor, the, the T cell gets activated and releases cytokines, bringing the inflammation, and helps clear the tumor. And I want to focus on just how powerful this technology is. Uh, just in the past few weeks, it's been a uh, nature publication on some of the first trials showed that patients that were treated just once with CAR T cells in 2010 have been clear for 10 years with no additional treatment. Now, this is two particular patients. Um, and of course, there are some, there are negative side effects, but it, this is a powerful technology that has been approved for use and is used in the clinic to treat very difficult cancers. Um, I was doing a little bit of reading here and uh, follicular lymphoma, which is kind of is a relatively survivable cancer in general, um, also has a different version called histo with hit, which is follicular lymphoma with histologic transformation, which drops the prognosis horribly. And even in that scenario, CAR T cell therapy brings survival to an act to some reasonable amount. It was I saw like just a twenty percent survival and a quick read through. So we are already applying genetic engineering in the clinic to really save lives, to help people live through diseases that would kill them otherwise. A second example I wanna point out 
I guess one thing I want to uh, step back on is with CAR T cells, that's a synthetic molecule. You would, there's no version of breeding that you can make that would, that would result in that molecule. Some of, it, some of these SCFVs are not even SCFVs anymore, but come from uh, camelids with nanobodies. So that comes from a completely different species even. Not to mention that it's targeted to a cancer that is in the patient that you're treating. That is something that is not possible by any version of breeding that is fully synthetic. There are also broader uh, applications that are meant for like a community level. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about golden rice, which was developed to address a problem of, turns out vitamin A deficiency is very common in the world. Vitamin A deficiency is a leading cause of blindness, like preventable blindness. And there's regions of the world where they, the food sources there just simply do not provide the vitamin A necessary. So one way to approach this is to take a food source that does grow there and engineer it to provide vitamin A. And so this was done with golden rice. Uh, they brought together a, two genes, one from pea plants and uh, ended up the one from corn was, was the most useful. And you can just see right off the bat, who's uh, pointer? Um, you can see right off the bat that you can see the, the change in color from wild type rice to the engineered rice with this uh, maize uh, PSI, PSY gene. And that color comes with uh, production of beta carotene beta-carotene, which is a precursor for vitamin A. This is great, both on a societal level, uh, as it helps a legitimate uh, problem that's happening in the world that is relatively preventable by providing just vitamin A. It works with the cultures that it was supposed to uh, aid. Instead of saying, oh, you need to start farming this new food, instead of forcing that, or instead of saying, well, we're going to try to get this to work, it's Use the food that you're already used to that are, that are important parts of your culture. And here's a version that will just help uh, fill a need that is there as well. So that is one approach. And frankly, it's also probably a pretty good consumer product. I don't know if any of you do cook at all, but I do. And I really enjoy cooking. I'm a big fan of making sure that my meal is seasoned in like a perfect way so it tastes really good but I also really, really value presenting the meal. I like making sure that that meal doesn't look like I piled a bunch of stuff onto a plate. And just because it tastes good, I'm not, I'm not happy with just that. I like to make sure that it looks great. And frankly, I kind of want yellow rice that I can, that I can put on my plate just because it would look good next to some greens and uh, a good chimichurri next to that. That's a personal use, but I think that's, it's a great way to apply it anyway. Um, and I want to talk about one more big level thing that can, that is done by genetic technologies. So sterile insect technology, uh, was used to eradicate the new world screw worm from North America. This technology was basically used by taking screw worms, which, uh, caused a lot of damage, irradiating them, picking up the males and releasing them because they're irradiated so they, to a point where they're sterile. And that just helped suppress the technology. And because of this, it has been eradicated from North America. We have not dealt with this pest. Uh, this works great. Unfortunately, that doesn't work great for every species. Uh, for example, with mosquitoes, you can irradiate mosquitoes, but they're, as you irradiate them, their sterility drops, but so does their health and their ability to mate with the wild ones. So 
once you get to the dose where you're like, okay, I'm certain that all of these are sterile, you're also at the dose where a lot of them are either dead or just going to out, be outperformed by the wild ones. Not to mention, it's not very scalable to be irradiating thousands of uh, worms constantly. So this is where genetic engineering can take a step in and use, a, use an engineered approach to basically recapitulate the same effects. So uh, I'm not here with my hat from the lab where I do research in, uh, but I will uh, mention a little bit about the fact that we do use the technologies using CRISPR-Cas9 systems in order to basically uh, develop species like barriers, where if the wild uh, organism mates with the wild organism, obviously it lives, or the offspring live. If our engineered one breed, breeds with an engineered one, obviously the offspring, like it's not obviously, but the offspring still lives. But if the EGI or the engineered version mates with the wild one, there are no, there are no offspring. And I won't go into details of how this works, but in short, uh, some, some cool effects of this is that this is built using s pyogenase Cas9, so bacterial uh, protein, VPR, P65, and RTA, two of which come from viruses and one comes from humans. So that's two organisms at this point, or three organisms at this point, plus the actual genome of the organism that you're engineering. So that's four uh, organisms right off the bat without just to make the system work. And that's before we even include things like uh, Dr. Max Scott here at GES actually developed a female lethal system that uh, will that helps make these sorts of technologies even more powerful or be or can be used by themselves. And that adds even more pieces onto uh, engineering something like this. So big picture, I just wanted to show that genome engineering is a powerful tool that can benefit uh, humanity. And not only can it benefit humanity, it does it on a variety of scales. You can go from individual scale of just helping one person who happens to have uh, cancer to a community scale of let's solve a problem that is affecting a small community, but an, and of course an important one, or an ecological size scale, something that can actually impact the entire world uh, directly. It also takes different approaches. There's things that are like all, that are already in the clinic, like CAR T cells that are meant to just augment current therapies and really build upon them. There's uh, addressing just a need that is out there in the world. Or there's something that takes in an existing technology and just expands upon it, makes it, be, makes it more usable to more organisms or more usable to, uh, or more powerful than the current technologies. So bringing these kind of big, kind of being motivated by these big picture things, the fact that genome engineering does benefit humanity and that uh, it is very accessible. Uh, there was a group of us that started out in uh, Minnesota. And if you know anything about the Midwest, there's lots of farms. So obviously there's a lot of agricultural uh, mindedness there. But it's also a center of, of medicine as the Mayo Clinic is centered there. There and of course the University of Minnesota and the Medical College of Wisconsin and University of Wisconsin. This keeps going. There's so many. There's like this overlap of different technologies and different areas that are all happening in the Midwest. And so from a discussion from discussions there, it, it, a few of us came to a realization: we need to ensure that genome engineering is used responsibly. 
And we need to ensure that the technology actually does make it to society, that it actually is used for the benefit of the world. These two questions that basically motivate the entirety of the genome writer's guild of what can we do to make sure that when people use genetic technologies, it's meant for good, not harm, but also that that good, how do we ensure that that good does affect people, that it's not good that it's locked up in a lab. And so we founded the Genome Writers Guild. Uh, we moved from there and, well, we have a few different approaches to this. And this really comes most abundantly clear in the way that we structure our conferences. So in our conferences, we structure them in what we like to see as a pretty unique way. We, of course, do have lots of science. We focus on everything from basic biology to applied biology and genetic engineering. We learn about how different repair pathways work. What is the newest thing in CAR T cells? What plants have we been engineered? But where we take a bit of a different approach is that we're not a just a scientific conference. We do include many different viewpoints and many different areas that, and stakeholders that are involved in genetic engineering. We are really proud of the fact that we have re regulators come to each one of our meetings. And I like to point out that this picture right here with uh, Neil Hoffman from the USDA, Laura Epstein from the FDA, and Eric Bonebust from the EPA might be one of its kind of actually getting all three genetic engineering regulators in a single picture. Uh, at least to my knowledge, is the only one that exists. So that happened at one of our conferences. Um, beyond regulators, we include companies that have a view, view, their viewpoints. We have farmers who come in and have spoken to us about what they need in, on their fields uh, for cattle, whether genetic engineering is something they even want, or what problems would genetic engineering be able to address that currently breeding cannot. We include viewpoints from USGS to talk about invasive species. And we even have artists. So I like the picture at the bottom where we have that wall, where we had an artist that came in and said, hey, we, I want to make this wall where we start with a core, core piece. And then all the participants at the conference can add a little extra piece of like just drawing something that genetic engineering means to them and add that on. So it's a really fun wall. I have a bunch of pictures that I can share at some point. Uh, of like the individual ones. There's everything from little puns to just like people saying, like drawing something that shows like, no, I want to, like, I want to see the benefits of this. And like I said, there's obviously a, a good handful of hard science in there as well. Um, so that's our big approach. We really want to bring all these viewpoints in because by bringing all these approaches in, we get to learn from different people's viewpoints. We get to learn from what actually is important to who as well as actually talk about what steps need to be taken in order to make this actually hit market, for lack of a better term. And so I want to end this talk with one last big piece, which is maybe a bit of a uh, cautionary tale that it does help and that does help inform kind of the approach that GWG does. So I recently learned about David Starr Jordan. And if any of you know that name, then you probably know where the overall part is going. But I learned about him in a particular like order. So I started by learning that he was an ichthologist, so he studied fish. He was extremely prolific, had has been part of characterizing thousands of species of fish. Um, he also was the first president of Stanford. Um, so he was a brilliant scientist. He was very loud against. Uh, he was very ad adamant about checking biases so you don't get trapped. 
in the biases when, as a scientist. He spoke out against pseudoscience. Um, but that was, here's the part of the cautionary tale. Despite all of this, despite being very adamant about don't get caught in biases, make sure you check yourself, he got caught in his own. Uh, he misread and misapplied Darwin's theories and ultimately used them in order to justify eugenics. And he wrote to Congress and was prolific at that. And real people truly suffered because of that. That is not what science is supposed to do. That is not what anyone is supposed to do. So it is, a, it is a lesson that even if you know that you should be checking your biases, you need to be active against the ones that you might not even think that you have. And so that is kind of what the approach of the Genome Writers Guild comes down to, is how do we make sure that we check these biases? We might be a genome engineering, uh, like we might be pro-genome engineering, but that doesn't mean that we don't want to check to make sure that we're not making mistakes while we apply this. We know that genome engineering can do, do benefit. We've seen that. But we want to make sure that we do this in the most positive way possible. And we do this by bringing in as many viewpoints as possible, whether it comes from ethicists or from regulators or from stakeholders who are just going to be the, consumer, the consumers that ultimately use the products, whether as, uh, as a medicine or just by being affected by the fact that it's an ecological scale, uh, scale project. So with that, uh, I will uh, invite to our hybrid conference coming in 2022. Uh, we're hosting in on July 27th to July 29th in Minneapolis, Minnesota, if you feel like flying out. But we'll also uh, be having it live streamed uh, as a hybrid. Uh, the QR code will lead to our website just to make it a little bit easier. And of course, I left my email for questions. And before I wrap up, I will be happy to answer any questions that uh, come up or any questions you may have. But I want to see three big questions because I want to check my own biases with the group of ethicists and sociologists here and want to pose three big ones. One, how do we ensure that genome engineering is used responsibly? Two, how do we ensure that the technology is actually used to benefit society? And three, is biology fundamentally different from other technologies? And if so, how? Thank you. Okay, um, okay, if you have a question, put your hand up or put it in the chat. It looks like Joseph has a question. So if you'd like to unmute yourself, Joseph. So um, Adam, that's a very good talk there. Learned a lot from it. And I like the way you were able to break down the concept of um, what genome engineering and all that. So good job there. But, but just to ask, in that attempt to break down complicated topics so people make more sense of, for example, the reference to the idea of uh, genome engineering and linking it with how probably the first method of genome engineering was done by the farmer who domesticated one crop or the other. When those linkages are drawn, do we get a sense um, the audiences buy the idea or then they see it differently? Because, so for example, um, the birds have been flying for God knows how many years now. So there is talk about how that, for example, inspired the whole idea of the aeroplane and all. 
But if you draw the linkage between the bed and the airplane, any, anyone who is listening to you will tell you that's um, not a cool way to look at it. And, and, and that there's so much space between what a bed looks like and what an airplane looks like. So just to get a sense, when those linkages are drawn between what has existed all the way before and what is being done now, do the audience really buy that? I mean, it kind of comes down to depends on the audience. Uh, I mean, I definitely view it as as it genuinely is gen genome engineering. And I think I, I usually have the point of, yes, humans have been manipulating nature. I've, I have gotten feedback before where it comes down to, sure, maybe we've been manipulating nature, but this is different than how we manipulate it. Um, so I do get that feedback sometimes. But Broadly, yeah, ultimately people do agree that yes, humanity has been manipulating nature. Um, they may disagree on the terminology, but at least that core aspect does get agreed on most, most of the time. Yeah. Hi, um, so I have a question. You mentioned trying to get a variety of viewpoints at your conferences. And I'm curious if you ever have advocacy groups that are opposed to genetic engineering um, come to any of your conferences? And then, so how do you kind of address this topic with them and try to build bridges? So we've not had active advocacy groups that were against genome engineering, but we did have, we do try to bring in opposing viewpoints periodically. Um, the, at our last conference was an interesting one where we kind of accidentally did, but we're actually really happy to hear about it. Um, we invited a Native American uh, chef who uses uh, traditional plants that grow in the United, the Americas, as that's, that's where he sources every, every, all of his food. And he was talking about why that approach is important and why that approach is important to his culture, um, at least in his viewpoint. And when asked, so what are your thoughts about using genome engineering? He said, I would rather stay out of it uh, unless it's necessary to like revive a plant that has been lost but generally was it was saying no i'd rather keep it to the more original versions so we are happy to hear those points um we've not actively invited advocacy groups against genome engineering um but that might be a good approach in the future or at least to have those conversations maybe even not at a conference level where you can have many many people all of a sudden discussing it, but start with smaller conversations and bring it up to that conference level. Uh, we have a few questions posted in the chat. Um, I'll start with um, Eric's question. Does GWG have any plans to develop recommendations or position papers on challenges in the genome engineering like heritable human applications? So we've had some discussion about how we go about doing that. And there was at least a bit of a draft working at some point uh, for terrible uh, changes in humans. Um, part of that is because we are so broad, it is a bit of a difficulty of coming up with a exact consensus. So that is one part of that. But yes, there has been a bit of discussion about coming up with explicit recommendations as well. Um, there are comments by Dylan and Modessa both relating to you know, the previous question about what was before and now and you know, ability to compare it. And there are comments about like ancient farmers, while they tried, did some form of genetic engineering, it wasn't necessarily patented. So there's a difference in terms of like how technology now is becoming more uh, industrialized and profitable. 
in versus well profits was always there but it's like more um the intellectual property is being secured versus it used to be free to um that is true. I, that's an that's an interesting perspective. I never thought of it that the patent point as being a one of the major differences between uh, old technologies and modern. I believe uh, that's true of a lot of technologies in a broad sense. So I guess that's not explicitly stuck to just genetic engineering. Ultimately, we didn't you didn't used to be able to patent the three sticks of board the three boards that you uh, stuck together to make a bridge but you can patent the processes nowadays. Um, I see that as true of many technologies, but yes, that is, a, that is an interesting difference. Uh, Amanda has a question. Amanda, do you want to go ahead and ask? Yeah, sure, thanks so much. Um, I think it's awesome that you show the FDA, USDA, EPA all coming together to, to meet and discuss these kinds of things. I'm curious if there are, um, key issues that they all are focusing on together. And also, um, if there's any conversation about potentially including GMOs as, as organically labeled products down the line. I have not heard of discussion about labeling them as organically, uh, as organic down the line. I'd, I'd personally advocate for it, but uh, beyond that, one of the, some of the big issues of course are safety, the safety of uh, the technology about how you can apply the technology and make sure that it's, uh, make sure that it is effective, that it doesn't uh, spread and do ecological damage. Each of the three regulators has different, uh, has different jobs as prescribed by Congress. So for example, USDA's focus is on their, their part of covering gen genome engineering technologies is to make sure that there's not plant pests that come out of genome engineering. That's really comes down to what the, what the actual foundational documents of the USDA are. So that's what they focus on. Um, whereas FDA focuses a bit differently. So yeah, uh, because they're, they're, their focus is on human health effects. So these are different approaches they, they need to um, because those are, that's what they're required to by law. Um, there is some universality in some of their approaches um, in terms of what kind of questions to ask. And of course, the process is a bit different because depending on what kind of technology you are, uh, each, each uh, agency has their own process. So USDA, for example, uh, likes to, has been very stream, streamlining the process as much as possible, saying if the technology has been developed and tested, then you can it can pass through uh, more quickly. Uh, they have, so if it's like basically a recreation of the technology it can pass through more quickly. They've, for gene editing, their approach has been that single base pair changes are not regulated by them because they can happen by nature. Um, so they, they kind of took the approach of, if it can happen in nature, we're, it's not regulated by us. Um, whereas FDA views that as no, if you if you if you did the act of manipulation, that is still regulated by us. Um, there's some, some questions Thanks. in the chat. I'm going to go to uh, William Kinsella has a question. Would you like to ask it yourself? Yes, thank. 
You're muted. Bill, you're muted. Bill, you're muted. I already hit on mute, so I'm technologically uh, unsophisticated. So, um, Adam, thank you for being here with us today. Um, as background, I'll say that I'm somebody who primarily studies issues around nuclear energy. Uh, so I tend to see things through that lens. So in the nuclear realm, uh, once upon a time, there was unbridled enthusiasm for the technology. And then over time, people became more cognizant of some of the issues. Um, one thing that was found along the way is that it's often useful to separate the function of governance or regulation from the function of promotion. So what I'm asking you today is how does the guild see itself balancing the regulatory goal and the promotional goal for genetic engineering? In a lot of ways, our, our role, well, the way that we approach the promotion role um, and where regulatory parts come into this is to actually set up those conversations between regulators and scientists early. Um, the, the goal there is so that the scientists can know what the approach is to develop the technology in a way that makes sense with the regulators, that makes sense with how the regulations will affect them in the long term. Our, that's the promotion half of it. In terms of regulation, we are there. We take the role of not specific. We don't specifically advocate for a particular uh, regulatory setup. Um, we're not like we're not a lobbying group um, legally, even. So the way that we actually facilitate uh, the regulatory part of that is internal, to some extent, internal uh, regulation by creating a in creating a group with the intent of doing it uh, responsibly. So this creates kind of like the social regulation within the group, but also in terms of with the actual regulators, we interact with them by allowing, like giving them a platform to ask scientists and ask other stakeholders questions. So they do this outreach normally by their own channels. They have outreach meetings whenever they have new rules to speak to stakeholders. But we're just what we we like to provide an additional platform. In fact, for our last meeting, the FDA had a kind of a joint meeting set up. So during like a lunch, our lunch break, they had a stakeholder meeting open. Seize them. This lost the screen. Um, but uh, they during our lunch break, they had a a separate meeting open to hear from the scientists about what they feel about the new proposed regulations and what, what direction that could potentially go. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have a question from uh, Gail Henderson. Uh, if you'd like to unmute yourself and ask that. Hey, um, <clears throat> I, I, could, could you read it? For me, yeah, uh, yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. Because I think I said it there better than I'd say it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank uh, you. Did the GWG start off as a group that was promoting scientists as the ultimate source of information about genetic engineering? And thus, the scientists are essential um, to include in any policy debates. I do think that they're essential to include in a policy debate, but no, we were not uh, we were not founded on the 
point that scientists are the ultimate only source. In fact, quite the opposite. It was really important to us to include other sources right off the bat. I didn't speak on it much, but we've had ethicists speak at our conferences. Even uh, just the general structure is meant to bring other people right off the bat. So uh, one of our founding members was an artist, not a scientist by any means. Um, and she's one of our founding members of important and an incredibly important part. Uh, a lot of the artwork that came up throughout this uh, talk came from her. But that was really important to us because she was a stakeholder uh, in terms of part of the public that is affected by this. We do not we do not presume that scientists know what direction everything in society should happen. That's not the role of scientists, in fact. And kind of the point of what I was speaking earlier on the fact that we must check our biases, scientists approach it with one particular mindset and we need to have those other mindsets as well. Uh, Jennifer, would you like to ask you a question? Sure. Hi, Adam. Thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it and great talk. Um, so I had more questions about ensuring responsibility and societal benefits in kind of a real-time sense. So it's one thing to talk to regulators at kind of the later development stage. Um, and But as you know, there's you know quite the revolving door between regulators and industry and close connections between regulators and industry. I'm wondering what you would uh, do to ensure responsibility more on the upstream side in the development of the technology, in addition to conferences and you know working with um, the artists. Are there any kind of projects that bring together uh, social scientists and ethicists with your natural scientists at the University of Minnesota or among your members? Uh, so, just curious to hear a little bit about how you really do that kind of embedded integrative work. Cause we, you know, we're, we're trying to do it here with GES and sometimes it's difficult. There are a lot of challenges. And if you want to just reflect on those experiences, that would be great. They certainly are challenges uh, to that. Um, yes, so our, our conferences are our flagship. That's where the, the biggest part of our uh, efforts go. Part of that is meant to, you mentioned, to talk about regulation early or talk about societal impacts early. And that's kind of the point of having these conferences be so different and broad is because we are able to bring all of these all of these early, that means that scientists who are doing the basic science that might be applied in a few years can already start talking to the relevant stakeholders and relevant groups right off the bat. Um, beyond that, we have, we have run a few satellite events. Um, these were meant mostly for public engagement in order to learn from the public. Uh, we like to sell them as dialogues, not as, uh, not as lectures, not as, uh, teaching events, but as dialogues, it's meant to be for the presenters to also be learning and for the guild to also be learning. Um, there was talk about potentially getting a partnership with a museum to either go with an art, art, art exhibit or partnering with like a science kind of museum aspect. Um, that's one thing that I heard the GES has, has developed. So I will probably be discussing about that in a bit uh, at some point today, because I'm actually really curious about how you did it. Uh, hopefully I answered your question. Um, Jason, would you like to ask your question? Sure, thanks. Um, and thanks for visiting us, Adam. Um, so I was thinking about 
um, how the writers, you know, the Genome Writers Guild participates in the conversation sort of before we start developing the technology. So if you think about a, a problem, there's many different ways we might solve a problem. And if we pick vitamin A deficiency, you know, we can imagine that we could see that problem and we could say, well, let's deliver supplements to people who are vitamin A deficient, or let's promote education about healthier di diets so that people eat more varied diets, or let's focus on issues of poverty, which contribute to people not eating more diverse diets, even when the food is available, um, or we could invent golden rice, right? Um, and so how do you, as a community that's focused on genome editing, participate in the conversation about what kind of approach we would even take to solve a particular problem? Um, and to, to connect to one of your earlier points about um, eugenics and, and science, you know, that I, from what I understand, you know, that a lot of eugenicists were like what we might think of as good people with good intentions. They were interested, at least some of them, in solving social problems like poverty and crime and things like that. And what happened with many of them is that they used their most familiar tools, which was genetics, as a frame for what the solution must look like. So instead of looking at issues of, for example, racism or unequal access or poverty as something that we would address through social programs, they saw genetics as the, as the tool that would be most useful. Um, so that, that was a kind of a blind spot or a bias that you might imagine for eugenicists in science. And so how do you as a community, you know, acknowledge that there are many ways that we might solve these problems and figure out what are the problems where we really want to put genome editing to the test and where might we prioritize other types of approaches and how can we do that responsibly? Thank you. Yeah, well, there's definitely the joke of uh, if you have a hammer, everything's a nail, right? And that is a very bad approach. Uh, that is that is bad for uh, any 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 technology, any uh, field, uh, and that includes genome engineering. No, we while we do advocate for the use of genome engineering for in a positive light, we do not advocate it as the technology that will solve all your problems. So that's not what we're here for. Um, Part of that approach, part of that, it really comes down to, yes, you're right, the discussion of golden rice. I use golden rice as an example um, because it does, it is one approach. And it actually, you're right, because there are potential other approaches, it does come come with it, a dialogue. We we are fans of talking early and about whether technology is useful. Um, one, one particular approach that we do like to talk about is. Maybe if you have an idea, do start the outreach early and start with the outreach and say, is this useful to your community? Um, that's one thing. Uh, we had Kevin Esfault talk at our uh, conference last year and spoke about how his approach to working uh, in New Zealand about that, of speaking about, okay, so here's a few approaches that are genome engineering based, but here's also the alternatives. And I, I do like that approach. I think the Genome Writers Guild likes that approach. It is important to ask that because, no, the, not, yes, genome, sorry, yes, genome engineering can definitely be used for benefit. There's definitely roles it can play that other technologies cannot. But that doesn't mean that it's a solution for every single problem that we may face. It's just a solution for some of those problems. And we do need to take that approach. And, and if I can just add, I think, Golden Rice is actually a really interesting example because my understanding is that it's been, at least one version of it has been rejected by a lot of people who don't want to cook yellow rice. I mean, you talked about your interest in having yellow rice. 
Um, but among some communities that was seen as not good food. Um, and so that kind of early engagement to understand that people might not be interested in cooking yellow rice would have been really useful for you know scientists to understand early and in, in thinking about this as a solution to the problem. Agreed. And, I mean, and that golden like, rice, sorry, go ahead. Oh, and just, you know, that golden rice has been very controversial um, and it's had a lot of uh, technical hurdles um, and a lot of social and cultural hurdles. So I think that story is really complicated and actually illustrates some of the complexity of doing responsible innovation of not just producing a product that has the potential to do good in the world, but producing a product that actually solves problems in an efficient and sensitive manner. Agreed. And I do like, maybe maybe that's another reason I do like golden rice as an example is that it, d- it does come with a few of those uh, hurdles right with it. So it is, it is an example that is almost intentionally not perfect. Um, it is an example of potential use that uh, does need does need advocacy. I do know that its development happened pretty early. It was in the early 2000s. And so I believe the first one was 2000 and the second one was 2005. And both of those versions probably happened with the mindset of, oh, I have a solution to the problem as opposed to the broader one. And so it's a good example of how you do need to engage with many people throughout many stages. Um, we have a question from Eric. Would you like to ask that yourself? Sure. Uh, Adam, this is a, a slightly different question, kind of question, but I'm just curious about the name. Uh, why you call yourselves a guild? Traditionally, guilds are were kind of self-protection organizations for trades and um, were meant to keep the rest of the world out of the decision-making. Um, so given your open approach, it seems interesting that you, this is the Genome Writers' own guild. Do you know anything about the origins of that name? Yeah, so kind of the thought process of the name was similar of the historical background, but maybe a slightly different part of the historical background. And it came from a bit of that uh, training aspect of it and the real, the real like trying to develop the technology aspect of the more historical guilds. Um, that's kind of where it came from. Um, so that was what we were trying to go for, uh, a bit of working with our uh, students so that the students build up to the next stage, the students can grow and uh, reach the f- future technology developer stage. Um, that's the aspect that we really wanted to capture. And then also the aspect of focusing on a particular field as opposed to as opposed to excluding other people from other perspectives on the field, the the idea was we are focusing on this field, so we're not going to be the uh, breed, the plant breeding guild, right? We are we are focused on genetic engineering, so we are a pro genetic engineering group in general. So that's what we wanted to focus on, but not as an exclusionary. We don't want other people to say it, put a say in this, which is that we do want other people to put a say on this particular topic. Thank you. Uh, Fred Gould has a question. Fred, do you want to go ahead and ask it? Sure. Thanks for this. It's been an interesting discussion. Um, And I thought a number of comments were brought up that um, 
were important to address. And I was just wondering, because you've mentioned a number of these uh, products of agricultural genetic technologies that you think would have a real positive impact on society. But I was wondering if you could give us some examples where you think that there are some products uh, for agriculture through genetic engineering that you would worry about. There, that is an interesting question. Um, I'd have to think on that a little bit. So I'm sorry, I don't have one right off the top of my head. There is, I think the, the more obvious one would be uh, a point that was brought up earlier, which is there are definitely technologies where it's not that it's, it's not that it would be necessarily harmful, but it would be the, uh, it would be the problem of, it's not the best solution. Like there are better solutions than trying to force this one. Uh, there's no need to fit a, a square peg into a round hole kind of idea. Maybe the, we discussed golden rice and I'll use that as the key example here again, where like potentially there's other solutions that might be better and that's worthwhile discussing. Um, there are some, from a non-agricultural standpoint, there's potential large impacts from some ecological scale uh, effects. For example, if you're starting to change a population of an, or, of an organism enough to actually have ecological impacts, it might go downstream and make further changes to the to ecology uh, as a broad concept and the general environment there. And I suppose rambling through this, I would also say that there's potential, however we approach growing any crop, whether it is uh, through GM or other mechanisms, there is a question of how will that impact ecology beyond just the spot that you're growing in? Will that change the Will that change the uh, genetic diversity in the area or will it affect wild type populations in any way? And I guess those are questions that need to be brought up with any technology, of course. Thank you. Um, I have a question. So, you know, the conferences often tend to be places where people go to say what they want to say instead of going places where people go to listen to what others have to say. Um, and given that your conferences are like so diverse. Uh, is there anything in particular that you guys try to do to make sure that people actually listen to like the dialogue actually happens instead of people saying, talking over each other? Yes, that is very important. We, we do try to have, um, it's been tougher with the more hybrid approaches, but we've tried to have uh, both workshops and kind of, uh, the word would be events maybe uh, in between where we would sit down and have a mix of people at the table. So we actually intentionally mixed the tables that people were sitting at and have them, uh, for example, work through like, what are some of the big questions about this particular uh, application of genome engineering? Or what are some of the, what are an approach or how would a person of this particular group uh, approach this technology. So I believe there was like, how would a, uh, how would like a nuclear family approach a genome engineering technology that is put in front of them on their table and they learned that it's uh, genetically modified. And because we intentionally mixed the groups there that intentionally had the perspectives of, well, the person that, that has a science background says that their, their thoughts on that versus the person that has the ethics background puts their thoughts on that. Uh, 
that was one particular thing that we did to like really encourage discussion dialogue there. And of course, ask, ask questions and try to see those kinds of conversations in the actual talks as well. Um, let's see, we have a comment from uh, Bill again. So would you like to um, say it out loud? Sorry, I haven't had a chance for you to do it. I believe you're still muted. Okay, I think I'm unmuted now. I have a new computer. That's my excuse. Um, still learning the ropes. So yeah, I just want to follow on what what Eric raised about the, this um, terminology of um, calling yourselves a guild, um, with the Dune movie out there and the Guild of Navigators, right? Uh, we think of, of that sort of guild as an insular esoteric community that possesses a special knowledge. And that is the sort of historical tradition. I raised in my comment, the analogy to nuclear scientist, Alvin Weinberg, um, who worked with the Manhattan Project, went on to be the first director of Oak Ridge National Lab. He had an idea for a atomic priesthood uh, of people who had special technical knowledge and would have a special place in informing policy. So uh, I don't think that's what you're planning at all with, with your guild, uh, Adam. Um, but to the extent that words have consequences, you're framing your identity as an organization in a particular way. And um, you may wanna think about how to, what, what are the implications pro and con of doing that? So I'm not adding anything new here to what Eric mentioned, but I just wanna um, sort of highlight that a little bit further. And thank you to you both for uh, that comment. It is useful to look at uh, naming from a different perspective as well. Uh, we've seen that a lot uh, recently that naming is important and words do have consequences as you mentioned. Uh, so I will dive into that myself and, of course, with the rest of the board to see uh, how to best approach that in the future as well. But thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. um, I think with that, we are at one o'clock, so we're out of time for more questions. Don't see anyone raise hands. But um, I would like everyone uh, to join me in thanking um, Adam for coming over here and giving us a wonderful talk and the discussion. <laughs> And thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure to talk with everyone and uh, get a few extra perspectives on many different things, including, I guess, the name. I uh, hope to see um, all of you next week for another exciting talk. And with that, goodbye. Thank you.